This is vexing again. It's really one of the, I think, one of the hardest things an entrepreneur has to deal with because you need those early adopters. You don't have a business unless you can get the first customers on board. And so you should pay a lot of attention to them and you should really understand them. Sometimes the needs of the early adopters are different than the needs of the mainstream customers. You're listening to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast. Welcome, everyone. I'm really excited about this podcast episode because we're speaking to one of the greats in the field, Tom Eisenman, founder of, there's apparently two titles for this book, um, The Failsafe Startup, which my Zoom is, is giving me a hard time here. And then remind me, Tom, the name of the, the other version of it. Yeah, I'll have the same trouble with the Zoom, but The Failsafe Startup in the UK and Commonwealth countries and in the US and probably a lot of other parts of the world, Why Startups Fail. Same book, different title. And one of the things that I was chatting with Tom about, why I was really excited about reading his book, was because he goes through a lot of the things that I've observed um, investing in, in over 400 companies and how things go well and how can they not go well. And, you know, the, the title almost sounds conservatively or, or, or maybe being too precautionary, but it, does, it isn't that. So if you're reading this and thinking that you're just trying to play it safe and therefore you will never build a big company by reading it, uh, actually, it's the other way around. There's a really good book that it reminded me of, Tom, called The Happiness Hypothesis. And the reason why it reminded me of that book was because it's not a book about how to be happy. It's about conditions that you need almost for happiness to, to happen. And, and if, you don't, if you don't meet those conditions, the likelihood of you being happy is very low. And I feel like your book is a lot about getting those conditions right. It doesn't guarantee success. Would you say that's a, a good? A yeah, good I, I think that's exactly right. And also, um, so anybody listening who's an engineer will recognize failsafe, but some folks who aren't. So a failsafe mechanism in engineering is anything that basically shuts down a product that's about to get, or, or a machine that's about to get in trouble uh, before the machine destroys itself. So the premise here is you can spot some trouble coming and you can take steps to avoid it and uh, take the right steps, you can avoid total failure. So failsafe. There we go. All right. So let's let's go through a little bit of the structure. I want to talk a little bit about the structure and then we can go into their sort of that early, quasi-early uh, stages, because I think that's the relevant, most relevant for, for the audience. So I really liked how you've structured it around launching, scaling, and failing. And you know, that, that beginning part of it is really around that early stage. And you break it out into parts that kind of map with my experience, like good idea, bad, bad fellows. I mean, you've given these these phenomenons, you've given them names. And I actually have slightly different names. Like we we talk about it. Well, we'll I'll, I'll tell you what those names are when we get to the, the sections. But you go through good idea, bad bedfellows. You go through false starts, false positives at the early stage. Then towards the late stage, you migrate to the speed trap, the help wanted, cascading miracles. Mm-hmm. And within those titles, you have like anecdotes and, and things that you walk through. And then you conclude with how entrepreneurs can handle failure and that whole process of, of not only like dealing with, with that as a, as a sort of psychological thing, but also as a potential springboard for future, for the future. So to some extent, you know, this is an inspiring book for a lot of people because it, it provides a, a sort of a roadmap to avoid some of these pitfalls. What was the original impetus? What, what sort of kicked you into saying, I need to write this book? Yeah, it goes back a long way. Um, academics move slower than entrepreneurs. So um, in 2013, I, I had been teaching 
I mean, I've been Harvard Business School faculty for 24 years, but a, a lot of that was teaching what I would call tech strategy. But but starting around 2008, I got pulled into startup management, sort of teaching people, um, you know, how do you spot the idea and figure out if it's a good idea and uh, mobilize the resources you need to, to pursue it, et cetera. And shortly after that, discovered Lean Startup and, and sort of pulled those ideas into our curriculum. And um, and started to sort of launch student teams off with uh, great enthusiasm and, and encouragement. Um, and, th- and there was a team that I had encouraged. They had been out of school for a year and uh, had done what lean startup practitioners would describe, I think, as a textbook perfect minimum viable product to validate their idea. Raised a million dollars, uh, wanted to raise a million and a half. That's part of the failure story. Um, launched the business and pretty much uh, ran out of money and couldn't raise more and had a shutdown within a year. I was I not only encouraged them, but I was an investor in the company and could point to a lot of things they'd done wrong and, and that might have contributed to the failure, but I couldn't pinpoint the cause. And, and that, was, that was disconcerting. Here I was supposedly an expert on startup management and failures, so if you, depending on what you define as a startup and what, how you define failure, maybe two-thirds of the outcomes are failures. And, and I was a failure at explaining failure, so one of the most important phenomena in my field. And so I, I uh, and, and, and having observed, so that was a personal problem, but then I also observed just this sort of pain and suffering, sheer hardship that the founders in this case, and in, and in many other cases that, that I was close to had experienced. So resolved to do everything I could to figure out why startups fail and whether they, whether they're patterns, whether they're ways to spot the patterns and, and take steps to avoid them. And if they were, and if the entrepreneurs sort of having done their best at that still failed, is there a way they could fail better with less pain and sort of positioning themselves to bounce back? So that set off uh, what was essentially an eight-year process of uh, reading everything I could get my hands on that academics and practitioners had written, talking to scores, maybe hundreds of failed founders and the investors who'd backed them, writing case studies, launching a course, and it all culminated in the book. Nice. Well, I mean, that that sounds like a good structure. And, and, and I know my colleague Kate wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. But for those of you that are, are tuning in, Kate is one of our newest members at Seedcamp. And uh, if it weren't for her, we wouldn't be speaking to Tom. So thanks, Kate, for for the idea and, and Tom for joining. Kate, handing it over to you. Yes. Yeah, no, Tom, again, thanks thanks so much for, for coming to talk to us about failure. <laughs> um, I think you know, something that I love about academics is the methodology you apply to research is very rigorous. And obviously, along with methodology, you know, essential to any research thesis and any academic research is to properly define what you're looking at. So we'd just love to hear kind of how you define success in, in, in your research, but then also kind of stepping back from the world of the of, of an academic, how, how do you, you know, define success or failure of a startup just as a person, as a citizen of this world? Yeah, it's it's uh, tricky. So let me let me take the flip of it. Sometimes the opposite of success is failure, but, but let me define failure because it's it's trickier than it seems. It may just so for listeners, may, only a professor would bother to define this term, isn't it crystal clear? But it's not really. So if you go to the definition of failure as a shortfall relative to expectations, which begs the question, which expectations and whose expectations? 
you know, some folks would say, well, any business that has shut down, you know, extinction is, we're not talking about the small failures in this book along the way, you know, sort of all of us have small failures every day and, and, and we learn from them and we bounce back. And so with the, the failure I'm interested in is the big one. Um, and so, so a shutdown will usually, but not always, right? A, a motion picture company will come together, shoot a film and then disband. And that, that's not failure, even though they've shut down. So, and, and there are many businesses, um, Carlos will be super alert to this because I'm sure he's got a bunch in his portfolio. It's not an endearing term and I don't love it, but some VCs will talk about zombies or living dead, um, a, um, a company that's generating enough cash to survive, but will never yield a return to the original investors. And so I wanted to, and, and that's some type of failure. So I wanted to include that. So the definition I use in the book is early stage investors did not and never will earn a, earn a positive return on their investment. I think that's a pretty good definition. One of the reasons you might ask, well, why not um, the founders and the founders' goals and whether the founder views the whole experience as a success? And the reality is by the time you get to late stage, series, say series D, five years in, seven years in, something like only 40% of startups are run by a founder CEO. 60% have been replaced by a professional manager along the way. So those are still startups and, and we care about their success and failure. So you can't view that through the lens of the founder. You, you, you need a different lens. And I think in that case, investors, a good lens. You might also ask about society at large, right? So there are um, financially successful startups by my definition that we wish would disappear. They exacerbate income inequality, they pollute, they have addictive products, and they're just not doing a whole lot of good, but they're making money. And, and, and reverse of that, there's there are companies that fail financially for, for their investors, but they generate spillover benefits to society. They show other entrepreneurs what not to do, and there's actually value in that. They train a whole set of employees on key skills or perspectives, and, and they'll go off and, and launch other businesses or work in other companies. And there's value in that. So there's not value that the investors will ever realize. So like so many things that academics do, the, the answer is, what, what do we mean by failure is it's complicated. And, and in the book, the beauty of writing a book is you get to spread out a little bit and you get to deal with the, the complications. So I mostly take the investor lens, but I certainly pay a lot of attention to the founders and to society. Well, you know, you were talking about value. And I think one of the things that uh, I don't want to strip those that are going to buy your book is the value of reading, especially the later chapters. And so for the purpose of this particular recording, I think it would be cool to focus on the early stages. So effectively, that that sort of the three main points that you bring up. And then within that, there's uh, frameworks that you've built. And we'll let the audience uh, read a little bit about what kills late stage companies mm -hmm. and how to deal with failure. So on, on the early stage, you go through a good idea about bedfellows, uh, false starts, and false positives. And maybe if, if you can just go through each one as much detail as you want, and then we'll we'll riff from that. Sure. So let me start with false starts, because I actually think this is the number one killer of early stage startups. And, and the concept here, it, we're, we're about to all watch the Olympics. So it's the same as track and field or swimming, right? The athlete literally jumps the gun um, in their zeal to compete and get going. And the, the same way entrepreneurs are often super eager to build and sell the thing they've envisioned. And they will dive in, get the engineering work started, get the product built as fast as they can. 
and launch, it's often a false start. And it's a false start because that first version of the product misses the mark in some important way. There's some, some set of customer needs that uh, just aren't there or the needs are there, but they've got the wrong solution for those customer needs. And, and the false start is essentially because these entrepreneurs have skipped a phase of upfront research that every entrepreneur really should be doing. And we're not talking about months or years, we're talking about weeks of figuring out, like a good user experience designer would, what is the unmet customer need we're targeting for which customer segment. And then a good designer will generate a lot of solutions, find some quick way to get feedback on all of them, you know, and narrow down to the solution that makes most sense. And, and many founders will skip all of this. They sort of have a vision burning bright, the problem solution pair they're going to go after. They're confident. They think they can see around corners. And, and it's really in the DNA of, of an entrepreneur to do this, right? Who's an entrepreneur? They're, they're somebody who makes things happen. So uh, what could be more naturally in terms of making things happen than getting started you know, on your vision? And um, technical founders are especially prone to this because they love to build things. So you start building. But even non-technical founders, a lot of the MBAs I work with can't build but they hear over and over again that great product is crucial to success and they're good at networking. So they go out and find somebody who can build. They, they recruit a co-founder who's technical or they find some way to cobble together a product development team. And once those people are on board, you need to keep them busy, right? You're, you're an entrepreneur who's just getting started. You have limited resources and you're not going to have a, a, an engineering team twiddling their thumbs waiting for you to, to, to research the vision and test your ideas. So the entrepreneurs here have made a bad trade. Essentially, they've, they've wasted, let's say, four months building, selling, and then figuring out what's wrong and what to do next. That There's a four-month phase where the first version didn't work, and their odds of, of hitting that bad phase are, are much higher because they've skipped what might be four weeks of upfront research. So they've essentially traded four weeks for four months. And I mean, there's no guarantee that if they spent the four weeks, they're also going to get it right, but it's, it sure improves the odds. Yeah, and this is, this is a, an issue that I, I've seen in the past and is still present. I mean, it, you know, and this, this is to a, a question Kate asked earlier about how you, how you got this data and who you, you asked. And the reason why I'm bringing it up is because I have found that when we started investing in 2007, it was a common phenomenon. But then again, the lean startup as a methodology was was just coming out. And so I think there was a whole bunch of education. What I'm finding now is that there's a bifurcation of, of types of startups. I find that some of them don't, this is not an issue. And then there's a whole bunch that this is an issue. And I'm wondering, for the ones that have received VC funding, are you finding that it is more of an issue, the false start, or less of an issue? Because I'm finding that money is now gravitating to such pedigree of founder because there's so much competition that it I, I'm finding that a lot of them are really well versed in this stuff. And, and I'm just wondering if you qualify that yeah. VC back. No, that's a great um I, I hadn't thought this through, but I actually think it cuts both ways. You know, on the one hand, I think a lot of folks who who are good enough to attract professional investment venture capital have have probably found found their way to lean startup thinking. But and, and I'll come back to how the thinking is is not always applied the way the lean startup gurus would want. But let me come back to that. The second thing that's is is unfortunately once you raise money, a clock is ticking, right? And if you raise money and you there are only two of you, sort of two founders, then you still have the time to test things. But usually by the time you've raised some money, if it's a seed round, maybe you're still a team of two. 
But once it gets to be a big seed, you've probably got that money because you got a pretty big team. And now the clock is running. And that puts a lot of pressure on you to sort of just get going, get get the thing built and get the thing sold. So, so I think there are countervailing forces there. The mistake I think even a lot of founders have been exposed to lean startup thinking make is, I mean, it really comes in two steps. There's what I would think of as the Eric Reese version of lean startup, which is all about build, measure, learn, and the minimum viable product. And I think founders love that because they love to build. And so many will build an MVP. And even though Reese would say, you know, the MVP doesn't have to be a functional product. It can be a facsimile of a product on which you can get some feedback. And, you know, if, if you get reliable feedback on, on something that actually isn't, isn't, isn't an actual working product, then great, you know, Kickstarter campaign, letter of intent to a B2B seller or something like that. But I think a lot of people misinterpret MVP as the first working version of the product, and that takes some engineering work. What people tend to skip is the first half of Lean Startup, which I think of as the Steve Blank half, where where there's you know Steve is bloody minded about get out of the building, um, you know go do that customer discovery work, and that's the part I think a lot of of founders. I mean, it turns out Reese's book is a little easier to read than Blank's book, so. And it gives them what they want. It gives them the, um, the the push to go build. But you need both. You need the upfront customer discovery work and you need the MVP testing. And the yeah. MVP doesn't need to be an honest-to-God product. Yeah, I'm going to shamelessly plug one of our colleagues' books called The Mom Test. I don't know if you've read it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I make all my MBAs read it. I love yeah. that book. It's a, it's a great little book, but I, I think it that cuts to this point. Kate, you were going to ask a question. Yeah, yeah, good. Quickly, so I totally agree. I think customer discovery is something that I think is easily kind of, you know, looked past because you immediately want to get to that MVP and put something out, but it's absolutely essential. I'm wondering whether this is different among kind of serial entrepreneurs, first-time founders, second-time founders, whether kind of, you know, as you get into, you, you think of yourself already as an entrepreneur, you're less likely to go through that discovery process. Because in your in your book, you mentioned that kind of 30% of the founders who were success or who were successful previously are successful again, but the 20% or 22% of founders who failed, who failed a first time kind of found success the second time around. Do you, do, do you draw any, any conclusions about kind of like, a need for customer discovery in as a first-time founder or a second-time founder? Yeah, again, I think it's one of these things that may cut both ways. Now, there's a lot of reason to believe that a serial entrepreneur may be overconfident if they've been successful in the first go. So a successful founder has reasons to be overconfident. They made it work. And overconfident may mean more likely to skip some early steps. The other thing that serial entrepreneurs can fall prey to, whether they failed the first time or were successful the first time. It's just assuming the way they did it the first time is the right way. So, you know, if if they skip those steps the first time, I think they're probably more likely to skip them again. You know, maybe some people will have learned if they made mistakes and somewhere along the way, somebody told them, you know, you, you, you should have done some customer discovery. Is it obvious you didn't really understand your customers? So I don't know. I actually have the survey of 470 early stage founders that the appendix of the book talks about. It would actually be pretty interesting to slice that data as to whether people are serial and whether they were more likely to fall victim to this pattern. There's thanks, another thanks sli- for the question. There's another slice. If I could, if I could recommend another slice that I'd be curious to see is how many that had a marketing experienced person in the founding team made that committed that crime. Partially because if you've, if you've done any kind of market research as a profession, you would have had that beaten into you. So I'm curious to see how many committed that crime. 
Yeah, again, a, another way to slice that data, and, and and I've got the data to do that. I didn't I didn't look at the closely in the book at the composition of the founding team. You know, one one of the interesting patterns that jumped out of the data is that teams that replaced their vice president of sales, which is a close cousin of marketing, were actually more likely to succeed. Um, so, uh, so 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 there's there's something about there's something about finding the right person that contributes to success and failure, but that gets into the bad bedfellows issue, which yeah. is, which is the second one of the patterns. Yeah. So we're, I was going to get into that uh, partially, like there's a nice segue there. I was going to say like, one of the things that we look for is to, to the question that, that Kate was asking you regarding serial entrepreneurs, we look for what we call a founder market fit, which mm-hmm. is that the founder understands the market, whether they're serial or not. And we learned this mistake the hard way. We backed somebody who had been successful one industry didn't bring that port, like it wasn't a portable knowledge, like the, the operating a company was, but like the customer dynamics wasn't. So that brings me to the good idea, bad, bad fails, which you, you've broken out into everything from a misalignment between founders and not having the right fit between founders and the idea, the jockey versus the horse. Like maybe you just expand that one. Yeah. So, so, so the pattern is good idea, bad, bad fellows. And you know the early versions of the of the book outline uh, started with something like fifty failure patterns, and and you could sort of take bad bedfellows and and as you say sort of chop it into pieces. You know, is the problem with funder fit the fit between the investors and 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 the opportunity? Is it founder fit? You know, the founders and the opportunity. And um, and so I've collapsed a lot of things together with this pattern. But the inspiration is actually the the startup that I spoke about at the very beginning. Where they actually had a pretty good idea and and had validation for it, and when they launched the product, the sales were strong and repeat purchases were solid. But in in this case, the founders lacked domain experience. The the company was an apparel company, direct to consumer business model, but they were making women's professional apparel for for young professional women. Two tall founders who couldn't find work clothes that fit well, so they were going to make them. And the secret sauce was a um, a sizing scheme like men's suiting where. Whereas women's clothing, I don't know what the in, in Europe how the how the um, sizes go, but in the U.S. it might be size eight, size ten, size twelve, et cetera. You know, and men's suiting will be chest size and sleeve length, and and et cetera, et cetera. And um, these founders had the idea, but they'd never worked in apparel design or manufacturing. You know, what what I learned from this case study and studying others like it is to the point about founder fit. There are some opportunities where you really, really need industry domain experience. And others where you don't. I mean, if you're launching Instagram, I don't think you need to have worked in a photo sharing company or for Kodak or, you know, something like that. You just you have a vision and you have a good design team and launch the thing and and you know you have some genius about have, helping it spread virally. Peril is not like that. Food and beverage is not like that. My guess is you probably in your portfolio run across some folks who want to do food and beverage and oh my god, it's just. A, hundreds of, of specific decisions about packaging and you know who's going to be your co-packer and slotting allowances and when does it make sense to pay them to get your product promoted and you know when do you go from local distribution to national distribution and it's in physical inventory same thing with the apparel company right physical inventory is if you're doing a, so- a pure software business you can make some mistakes if you're doing anything that, that requires building physical inventory these mistakes get painful fast and so this team lacked the experience. They hired industry veterans to, you know, there are all these specialized functions in apparel design and manufacturing. 
fabric sourcer, pattern cutter, quality control, and they have to fit together. And they hired people who knew how to do these things, but they hired them from big established apparel companies, and they knew nothing about the rhythms of an early stage startup where everybody sort of has to, you know, like like six year olds uh, playing football, sort of you know scrumming around the ball, um, you know, swarm that problem, whatever fire is burning hottest. These people would sit and look at the problem and say, well, I'm the fabric sourcer. I don't know anything about how to solve that problem, so I'm not going to do anything. So bad team, um, founders who lack the experience and sort of made some rookie mistakes. The founders, in this case, two, uh, two MBAs, this is often the case. You get peers, friends, and they can't figure out who should be the boss, who should be the CEO. So uh, they're co- effectively co-CEOs, and that slows things down inevitably when they can't agree. And then in this case, you know, I think because in, uh, investors who would be smart enough to, in, to do a good job with this kind of company could see that this thing was headed for some trouble. They got invested, but they got tech investors who thought they were putting money into a direct-to-consumer thing that was going to go to the moon like Warby Parker or Bonobos and uh, didn't add a lot of value and weren't willing to follow on when the company got into trouble. The, you know, the fourth type of, if you will, resource provider is strategic partner. So most startups lack some key resource and other people have it. So you need to borrow it from other people. In this case, it was factories who, who would actually manufacture the apparel. And they continually pushed this company's orders to the back of the production line. If somebody, a bigger customer came in with something that needed to be expedited. So you go, problem with founders, team, investors, partners, just problems all around, but actually a pretty good idea. You know, you can make a certain number of mistakes, but if you're making mistakes and running into problems and all these functions, you're just never going to get it together fast enough to, to, given the amount of money and time you've got to make it work, you're not going to make it. So that's, that's bad bedfellows. Yeah. Kid, did you have a question? I did. I think especially when you were talking about kind of, you know, sometimes domain experience is just so essential for you to succeed. And if you don't have that, you'll fail. It's making me think that, you know, that certainly is the case. And I think there's some industries where you just know you need domain expertise. Like I would think like construction as is just something that you know, it's very difficult to, to get enterprise sales, you know, inbound. And so as a result, you just need expertise, you need to network in the space. It makes sense that you know, that pattern you know, isn't obvious. If you don't have domain expertise, it's it's harder to succeed as a company. But of course, sometimes you have these crazy, crazy cases where someone in a totally different industry starts a company. It happens to be wildly successful. No one thinks it'll be the case, but then it is. Um, I think I think Carlos mentioned the Soylent founder, software engineer who you know cobbled together a food tech company. No one thought it would succeed. It was outside of like a traditional pattern that you would see. And obviously, I think in venture capital, this is an outlier industry, ultimately. We're looking for things that don't fit the pattern because that's going to be the billion-dollar opportunity. And so I'm wondering, as an academic who's been looking into patterns of success and failure, you know, what, what might be the risk of potentially looking for patterns and kind of assessing companies based on these patterns? You know, this is, uh, this is Peter Thiel's big thesis, right, that if 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 you're following patterns too much, you're probably working off off of a herd mentality, and and you're never going to find the, um, the the big the big contrarian opportunity. So it's I'm just glad I don't have your job um, because uh, <laughs> I don't know how you keep both those things in your head. I mean, you obviously have to pay attention to the patterns, but then you have to not pay attention to the patterns. So good luck. Yeah, um, well, that's good because we're <laughs> moving swiftly onto the third category. Which is, you know, like this idea of false positives is where that good luck or bad luck runs out because sometimes that good luck only comes after 
giving it enough time. And this is where funding yeah. can sometimes be helpful, but sometimes you can waste a lot of time. I'll, I'll share one anecdote, which fits into this section quite quite neatly. We, um, we did an analysis of our portfolio. And one of the funny anecdotes we found was that if a company had too much early revenue too soon, it wasn't always going to do well. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, we found more of a negative correlation for us. Maybe for other people, it's different. But it was a weird one. And I think it was because it's a, it's a false positive. You start doubling down on something that is ultimately not there. So maybe you can share kind of what, what, what other false positives you you found. Yeah, no, that, um, I, I think that's a perfect way to set this one up. I mean, you know, every, everybody listening will be familiar with false positives because we've lived through that with COVID. And the same thing here, right? Entrepreneurs are vulnerable to both false negatives and false positives. The false negatives can be heartbreaking. This is where the entrepreneur gets the signal that her idea is not a good one, throws in the towel, you know, 18 months later, reads about some SPAC that you know took that idea and raised $800 million, could have, should have done that. The false positive is, again, a signal that the thing you're doing is working really well when it isn't likely to keep working really well. It'll often come from the early adopters. And this is vexing, again, it's really one of the, I think, one of the hardest things an entrepreneur has to deal with because you need those early adopters. You don't have a business unless you can get the first customers on board. And so you should pay a lot of attention to them and you should really understand them. Sometimes the needs of the early adopters are different than the needs of the mainstream customers. If you're going to build a business of any kind of scale, you also need mainstream customers later. You know, and as as an example, um, Dropbox, which which I'm sure everybody's familiar with, um, the early adopters there were software engineers who um, had very sophisticated needs for file management. Uh, They worked on many different devices, mobile and laptop. Um, They had huge files. They collaborated with a lot of people. They were the, the, the early adopters, the apostles and missionaries for Dropbox. And, and Drew Housen did a fantastic job of sort of gauging their needs and their response to the product and so forth. But at the same time, his, his Y Combinator application is a, is a matter of public record. It's a fascinating document. And he talks in the application about creating a product that will be so easy to use his mother can use it to store her recipes. So he's got a vision of a mainstream consumer and the important thing is here is he understood the difference between the two and he made a calculated bet. He built Dropbox for the mainstream and, and he bet correctly that it was going to be sufficiently superior to what the early adopters, the software engineers were using, that they would still adopt it, even though he left off a lot of features they were asking for. So that's one way to, to solve this. It isn't always the right way. Sometimes you do need to build for the early adopters. And then build a second product for the mainstream. It takes more effort. It takes more time. But sometimes that's the right solution. Sometimes the right solution is to migrate the feature set. So, so you know, you start to hide features, um, the sophisticated features, and, and you know, and and in a single product only expose the the basic stuff for as you start to bring the mainstream on board. So, th- so there's no right solution. But the crucial point is the entrepreneur really needs to understand: Are there differences in needs between the early, the mainstream and and the early adopters? And not always. Sometimes they have the same needs. But if there are different needs and and you go expanding full throttle in the direction of the early adopters, you can end up with the wrong product. And now it's difficult to pivot away. And and once you've you've invested a lot of energy, it takes a lot of time and effort and and money to pivot. Yeah. And and one of the interesting things, and you know, I don't I don't know if you want to comment on it, but you know, it's just a sort of concluding remark on that one is I'm seeing quite a bit of 
cash coming into the ecosystem because of macro uh, conditions, which forcing capital into private markets for uh, returning more yield. And with that cash, it's affecting some of these, the delay of some of these false positives, because you're effectively, you have enough money to sit through an additional four pivots if you needed to. And so I'm, I'm seeing a sort of a weird pattern of delayed sort of no, notification on false positives or um, delayed s- signals early on that customer care. Well, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, we Katera just went bankrupt $3 billion of, of, of um, capital. Um, Kate, to your early point about construction, a vertically integrated prefabricated construction company, SoftBank backed, um, you know, with a whole boatload of capital, uh, brandless SoftBank backed. And I think these are both, Carlos, exactly what you're saying. They never they, they 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 never really got the product market fit, and and they may have had something that appealed to some customers, but um, they just kept pushing that something um, long after it became clear that 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 they couldn't deliver um, what they were promising. Yeah, well, that brings a, the, the the SoftBank point brings up a really good question that I know Kate had had sort of wanted to, to ask Kate. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this book that you've written is kind of mostly written for or from the founders' perspective, or for for founders. So, question is, what would what advice would you give to investors at the early stage versus the late stage? Early stage is different. I think it maps onto the same advice you'd give to the entrepreneurs, namely, make sure the team has done the discovery work completely, right? That you know, all the way from customer discovery through MVP testing, and make sure you as a as, a, as an investor, have figured out, subject to our concerns about pattern matching and whether it's a good idea, uh, whether this is the type of business where a founder who lacks domain expertise might be generating creative solutions or might be getting themselves into a world of trouble, and whether, as if you're sort of a, an early stage investor, whether the early success you're seeing is, is, is going to be sustained and replicable. So I think all of that maps on well a later stage, that's where I think things get different, right? The, I mean, I won't go into all the patterns, but one of them is speed trap. And it's basically a firm that's growing too fast and 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 not profitably. And here is where I think a lot of a lot of investors make a bet that that the early momentum that that they want to put a lot of money behind is going to be able to sustain itself. And, and, and I think there's a lot of wishful thinking that investors do basically by putting money in at a high share price in the, say, a Series B company, you're creating a set of expectations that the things just got to grow, right? If, if they don't raise Series C at a step up, you know, one and a half, two times, whatever it is, the company is going to be struggling and uh, managers will start to leave and, and, and the world will catch on. So, so I, you know, I think investors it's going to be hard to keep them from playing that game. But but I think savvy investors are going to be careful about putting too much money and too much um, pressure on young firms to grow once once they've got product market fit. You know, the other, the other late stage pattern that I think investors can have a lot to do with, the cascading miracles pattern is a gigantic, um, hugely ambitious, long product development cycle idea where lots of things have to go wrong. Hence, you need a cascade of miracles. Think, think Tesla, think SpaceX, think Theranos, think Segway. A lot of these things, some of them succeed, many of them fail. And you often have a charismatic founder who manages to raise the huge amount of money and the, you know, over the long extended period that it requires. And sometimes there's a blurry line between charisma 
and um, narcissistic cult leadership. And it's all on the board of directors in a situation like that. You know, the, the failure of Theranos is a failure of the board of directors. And who's on the board? It's, it's, it's investors. So being a good board member can save a billion dollars in a situation like that. Yeah. Yeah. Those are very good, good things to reflect on. All right. So I'm going to conclude with the mother of all questions, putting you in the hot seat as a professor at Harvard Business School. Harvard Business School, and well, not this business school, but Harvard as a, as a university is one of the best limited partners in venture capital funds out in the world, mm-hmm. uh, along with other academic institutions of, of the US and you know the big, big pension funds and CalPERS. And, yep. and yep. Yale's, been, Yale's been doing even better. Yale, uh, as an example. I have just promoted you, Tom, to head of investments for the venture capital division of the Harvard Endowment. How would you adapt the venture capital model to implement all these lessons in a way that would prevent them from being driven by the demands of a typical LP so that you've inoculated these failures from the top? Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, There's so many changes I'd make that don't necessarily have to do with failure. You know, I might push all of the companies, all the firms in my portfolio to adopt some kind of ESG standards, the the venture capital version of ESG. It is, and I think there is a a relationship to failure there. I'm sure everybody listening knows we're talking about environmental, social, and governance issues. I think, you know, the point I was just making about a board of directors is a governance point. So, you know, I think VCs could do a much better job at figuring out are, are the products and helping helping founders understand whether the products they're creating are socially responsible, um, but also whether the company itself is governed well. So that would be a thing. And I think that's actually well within the, the power of, of big LPs. I don't know how you do this, but I think part of the problem of startup failure is investors, excuse me, entrepreneurs taking money from the wrong investors. So we're talking about VCs, and this is a mistake my students make, right? Sort of if you, if you go to a top business school, sort of drummed into you that if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you should take venture capital. You know, so my dress founders, Quincy Apparel, it never occurred to them that there was money other than venture capital money. So they went and found tech investors who were looking to back a DTC, a direct-to-consumer play. And um, they would have been far better off with somebody that was looking at for a three times return o- over a longer period than somebody that was looking for a 10 times return. And you know, they got pushed for growth. That was just a bad push. I don't know if there's a way for LPs to reduce the failure rate, essentially, of, of venture capital firms by making sure they don't invest in firms they shouldn't be investing in. Because not all the, entre- I mean, there's a lot of prestige associated with taking venture capital money. And so I think you can't necessarily trust the entrepreneurs to make the right decision there. You know, and, and, and hopefully the VCs will make the right decision. But you could invest in ones that were more careful about this as as a uh, as an LP, and then I suppose you could set up some kind of reporting, just sort of an expectation that if you're going to be in my portfolio, I want reports on uh, for for each of the companies in your portfolio, some kind of scoring system that, it, especially if it's an early stage focused VC firm, you know, against the false positive risk, the false start risk, the bad bedfellows risk. I actually think that'd be doable. Excellent. Well, thanks for that. I know I put you on the hot seat uh, on, on that one. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, you won't get in trouble. Um, well, thanks for joining us. Uh, I know that uh, your time is very valuable, and we had you had to go. So, I just wanted to thank you for for joining us. And guys, if you haven't read the book, there it is. 
in Europe. It's the fail-safe startup. Get it. I know you can't see it here. We'll put the show notes, link to it. And uh, yeah, it's great. It's a great read, whether you're early or or growth. And thanks, Kate, for helping co-host this with me. So thanks, guys. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Carlos. Thanks, Tom.